Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Please stay standing as we pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. Thank you for giving us these words. Thank you, Lord, for giving us truth gospel truth. And while it is hard to hear some of the things that happen because of that truth, we know it is truth and we know you have brought it to us. This morning, Lord, just speak to us. Speak to our hearts. You know, I pray. Amen. Please be seated. I work in technology. Now, before you hold that against me or your eyes gloss over because it's boring, I got to tell you, there's something about technology that's very similar to a lot of other businesses. We do what is most important first. If you're going to have a good company, you do what is most important first. In technology, we call it a roadmap, a roadmap of how we're going to get to where we want to go. And one of the hardest things in technology is not coding. It's not QAing after I've coded. It's not customer support. It's trying to figure out what do I put on my roadmap? What's important to me and how do I do it? You have to answer a couple questions. First, you have to answer, what is this going to be worth? Right? At the end of this, I got to get something out of it. We are not a nonprofit necessarily. We need to make some money here. So what are we going to make money on? What do I get out of it? Two, how much is it going to cost me to do? If this costs me a million dollars to do and I make $200,000, probably shouldn't be in business. You won't be in business. The last one is, what is the risk of doing this? If this is very risky, do I do it? What if this puts my company at risk? What if this puts people at risk? What do I do? So you take all these questions and you argue with each other for hours and you come to a final prioritization for the roadmap. Things are very similar in life. We need to look at our decisions. We need to look at the truth we have in front of us, and we need to prioritize. Once we've prioritized, just like business, that is your roadmap for life. You don't, don't stray from it. Don't move away from it. You run towards it as fast as you can. Now, before we dive into this passage, let's take a quick background and a setting of exactly where we're at in Matthew. Matthew has five discourses of Jesus, or five sermons of Jesus. We already saw the Sermon on the Mount. We have three others coming, one about the kingdom, one about community of the Messiah, and then the Olivet Discourse. But right now, we're in the second discourse in Matthew, and this one is when he's teaching his disciples. He is preparing to send out the 12. 
Bentley went over this right before Easter. He is preparing these 12 men to send them out to tell people the good news, to heal. He's given them special authority. He's given them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. He's even given them power to raise the dead. Now he's given them instructions, says this is how we're going to use this authority and this is what it's going to look like. Be prepared. Last week, Ben walked us through the first part of this discourse. and It's heavy. If you weren't here, I'm going to encourage you to listen. Persecution is coming, period. We have a great hope. We know where we're going to end up. But before then, it's going to be bad. There's going to be some bad things coming. And we're going to finish it today. Today, we're going to look at how do we make a clear confession and what does that look like? We're going to talk about the gospel means war. The gospel means war. Truth, not peace. And then we're going to look at the reward for those that receive. But before we do that, I want to start with the last verse and come back. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 11. And we're going to look at verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now notice something with me real quick. Do you guys see the chapter where it talks about all the great things the 12 did? No? You don't see it? That's because it's not there. There is nothing about what the 12 did. You want to know why? Compared to Jesus' teaching and preaching, it's insignificant. Okay, we go back to the most important thing first. Now, this is very interesting to me. Jesus, at this point, could have very easily said, you know, it's time for me to take a break. I've been at this a while. I've got 12 guys now doing the same thing I was doing. You know, the Mediterranean's nice this time of year. I can head over to Tel Aviv and have a nice time. Does he do that? No, he doesn't. Could he? Is he human? Yes. What do we do in business? We hire a workforce because it makes our life easier. I don't have to do as much. Does Jesus do that? Does he sit back and relax? No. We see he instantly turns around and runs out. He instantly goes after it. Napoleon Bonaparte has a saying that I like. It says, the fool has one great advantage over a man of sense. He is always satisfied with himself. Jesus is no fool. He is not satisfied. He is on this earth for a mission, and he is going to accomplish that mission. He is going to keep on teaching and preaching. Now, let me quickly say, there's nothing wrong with rest. We all need rest. We all need to take a step back and recharge ourselves in the Lord. But Jesus had a special mission, and Jesus found joy and energy in that mission. And it's an important lesson for us. You and your ministries need to find joy and encouragement. If you're only in ministries that drain you, that keep you up at night that you don't enjoy, you need to think very serious about those ministries and are you in the right ministry? Because we should have a joy that we get in each one of our ministries. I would encourage you, find that ministry. So like Jesus, you can keep on hard enjoying that ministry and keep on your mission. Now let's go back to our passage. We're gonna be back in chapter 10. Now real quickly, Chapter 10 has a telescoping effect. And what does that mean? That means that Jesus is speaking these words to his 12 disciples, 
but they actually have meaning for us today, right? It goes out the meaning that we're going to see. And today especially, a lot of this applies to us more than it does to them. You know what I love? I love the truth we're going to see here. Let's look at verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now many of your versions will say acknowledge. And you know what? I purposefully did not use that version because I like the word confess a lot better. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But before we get there, we need to remember the build up to this. Right? The last two messages we've had on Matthew, we've been building up to this verse, these two verses. We've been building up to the fact that a proper disciple will end up looking like their master. Okay? If you follow Jesus, you are inherently going to end up like Jesus. That's what you do. We know where we're going to go when we die. There's nothing to fear in this world. There's nothing to fear in death because you know what? We're going to be with the Lord. All right? And last one, we have to outwardly acknowledge or outwardly confess our Lord. In order to be a true disciple of Christ, there has to be an outward acknowledgement and identification with Christ. You have, to dec- you have to confess Christ before men. You cannot keep it to yourself. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 John 4.15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides him and he in God. Now let's bring it back to context. Persecution is bearing down on you. They're coming after you. What will you do? Do you ignore the Lord? Or do you confess with your mouth that he is God? Now many of us won't face the persecution we're talking about here or what we talked about last week, but many of us will still have to acknowledge Christ before others. And many of us are going to make mistakes. I'll be honest, I don't know how many times I look back at my life and go, oh man, that coworker just lobbed a softball. I could have told him something about Jesus, but I froze up and I got scared. Or my neighbor. I saw him the other day. I handed my one neighbor an Easter invitation and the next one I went, ooh, I know he doesn't like God. I'm a little scared to give him the invitation. I don't know if I want to do that. Or maybe we have a family member that we love, but we're scared. Maybe, maybe I'm going to hurt this relationship. I can't talk about this. That's scary. Now we're going to make mistakes. Do you know who made the biggest mistake of all of them? Do you guys remember a guy named Peter? The rock with which Christ built his church? The Peter that says, Lord, I will go and I am going to die with you today. Don't you worry. I got your back. And what happens next? I don't know who that guy is. No, no, no. Stop talking to me. I don't know who that guy is. No, I seriously don't know who that man is. What are you talking about? He denies Christ three times. The Lord makes provisions for our mistakes. But when we do make these mistakes, we need to examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Test yourself. 
If you feel comfortable acknowledging Christ before others, confessing him outwardly with your mouth, that is what we're supposed to do. If you don't, examine yourself. Why? Why will I not speak out for the Lord, the one that gave his son for me, the one that saved me from my sin? Why do I stay quiet? We need to understand that. Now, when you stand up for Christ, he's going to stand up for you in the day of judgment. Isn't this cool? I think this verse is so encouraging. Can you believe this? Jesus Christ, the God-man who came and lived on this earth, is going to know my name. I have no, no reason why. There's nothing special I've ever known with my life compared to him. He's going to know my name and he's going to stand up for me because I stood up for him. It doesn't matter who you are. Small, great, everybody in between, if you outwardly confess with your mouth Jesus Christ, he will outwardly confess you in front of his Father. I don't think there's any greater encouragement. But this also comes with a warning. If you love this world more than Jesus, if you love anything more than Jesus, or you deny him, he will also deny you. Now we see a couple Examples of this from Paul. First Timothy 1 says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Or 2 Timothy 4, For Demas, in love of this present world, has deserted me. If we continually deny Christ and put things in his place, he will deny us. Hence, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Where do you stand? And are you prepared? I find for me personally, sometimes it's very hard in these situations, but it's so much easier when I prepare my mind. If I prepare my mind and say, I am going into a hostile situation, how do I act? I can act much better. Now we're promised, last week we were promised that the Holy Spirit is going to come and give us words. Luke says that the Holy Spirit will actually teach us on the spot what we're supposed to say in these situations. John says that the Holy Spirit will help us to remember in this situation. But we have to be prepared with an answer. First Peter, be prepared for a reason that a hope is in you. You have to be prepared. You need to take your heart, you need to understand where you're at, and prepare yourself to acknowledge and confess Jesus in front of others. I'm going to end this section with a prayer from Spurgeon. It's one of my favorites. I think it's on the screen up here. He says this, Lord, let me never blush to own therein all companies. Work in me a bold spirit by the Holy Spirit. Let me confess thy truth, whatever the spirit of the age may be. Let me uphold thy church when she is most despised. Let me obey thy precepts when they are cost most dear. And let me glory in thy name when it is most reproached. Pray this prayer. Prepare your heart. We are to go and confess Christ in front of others. That is our, that is our role. That is our job to go do that. Now, when we confess him, we're not always going to get the answer we want, though. Let's look at verse 34. Truth, not peace. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, can you imagine this? The Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Do you guys remember the angels and Luke? 
They say glory to God in the highest. War on earth? No, peace. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. This man is bringing peace. Everything in the Old Testament points towards a Messiah that brings peace. And what does Jesus say? Nah, there's no peace coming. This is nothing but a sword coming at you. The 12 have just been given supernatural authority, authority that will bring peace and contentment, ability to heal and to cast out demons. And Jesus tells them, this will not bring peace, but it's going to divide. Now, when I talk about polarizing figures, lots of us can look to lots of different things in our lives, especially lately. Polarizing figures. Think politics for a second. Do we have some polarizing figures today? What's a polarizing figure? Somebody that forces you to make a choice. They force you to go down the line. Now, I'm going to contend that Jesus is the most polarizing figure ever to live. You want to know why? You have to make a choice. That's why there's not peace. There is no middle ground. Either you are for him or you are against him, and there is nothing in the middle. Jesus knows this. As I said, Jesus is not a fool. He's the God man, and he knows that he is going to come and divide everyone because some will accept this message and some will not. Let's look at the parable of the sower. Do you guys remember this? There's a sower in a field. He's tossing seed out. Some lands on the road, it's taken up by the birds. Some lands on this ground that is got rocks and there's not much there. It grows a little and dies. Some lands among thorns and is quickly choked out. And then some lands and provides fruit, right? And this is a parable of the gospel going out and the seed being planted and what comes from it. Now, in the parable of the sower, looking statistically... Only one out of four produces fruit. That means three out of four are not going to accept this message, or they accept it for a minute and then run away. That's not good odds. Do you know when you go out that there are some that aren't going to receive your message? You may tell them about Jesus and they're going to laugh at you. They're going to walk away from you. They may something, say something nice to your face, but then turn around and go against you. Jesus is preparing his disciples for that, and he's preparing us for that. You need to be prepared for this. People are going to say no, and they're going to walk away. And guess what? That's not on you. Your job is to tell the gospel to others, and then it's in the Lord's hands. Now, I'm going to use an example, and I see the die up here. I hope some of you have played cranium before. But uh, when I was first married, we were back in Ohio, and it was my brothers, Keith and Doug and I, with Lexi playing this game, Cranium. And as you know, with brothers, it might have been a tad bit competitive. I was winning, of course. I don't know whose team I was on, but I was winning, I'm sure. But we were playing, and we got into a wonderful argument about colors. Now, if you can see this die, do you guys see that there's two blue parts to it? You guys may not see it, but let me tell you a secret. I'm colorblind. And I blame my mom. She's colorblind. She's here, so I'm allowed to do that. She's colorblind, so I'm colorblind. So we got into this big argument. By the way, Keith and Doug are also colorblind. We got in this argument of it's blue. And there's this weird color on the board that doesn't match the dye because it's purple. And my wife, being the only color-safe person in the game, tells us, no, what are you guys arguing about? You're stupid. 
You guys don't know what you're doing. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But of course, like any good brothers, we argue and argue and argue. And eventually we have to bring in the other color safe person, my dad, and say, Dad, what color is this? Oh, it's purple. And at that point, you know, boys, we probably started arguing about something else. I can't remember. But it's so vivid in my mind that I could not tell the truth. I was not physically capable to tell the truth in this situation. I had no idea what it was. None. And until an outside influence came in and showed me what the real truth was, I was never going to get it. Ever. It's not in me. The same is true of the gospel. You guys know what? I did not figure out the gospel. I'm not that smart. I don't know that much. I don't know I need a savior. But the Lord comes and gives, gives us that truth so that we know that we're sinners. So that we know that we need a savior. The truth is this, that Christ came to earth as a God-man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He was raised three days later. He's with the Lord and someday he is coming again. And someday we will all be judged. We all need to defend the truth of the gospel. But when we defend that truth, we need to keep this in mind that not everybody has this truth. And we need to do it gently. But we do need to understand that there will be a division because not all will be enlightened. The point Jesus is making here is that this division does not stop us from telling the truth. This division does not stop us from confessing him, but to understand that not everyone will be with us. Prioritization. Let's look at verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I always kind of laugh at that one. That one kind of makes sense to me. <laughs> and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, we're taking verse 34 and now we're applying it to our relationships. In a minute, we're going to apply it to our personal life. But right now, we're applying this to our relationships. In the order that we need to have in our family. He has come to set those against each other. What does that mean? That does not mean that I can turn around and say, hey, now that I'm saved, I don't care about my parents anymore. I don't need to take care of them. I don't care about my brother anymore. I don't care about my sister anymore. I no longer have any ties to any of them. I can do whatever I want. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that when you prioritize your life and him first, it could cause a rift in your family. Because Jesus needs to be first and they need to be second. Think about this. If I love Christ and I do his commands, there's a chance that my family or my relationships may leave me. It's a true cost, true cost of following Christ. But it's out there and you need to understand that. This does not mean that we can also leave an unbelieving spouse. And I want to dwell on this for a second. Paul actually talks about this. If we are saved and we have a spouse who's unbelieving, if they're willing to stay with us, we need to keep them. 
You want to know why? Because maybe by God's grace, they can be saved through that relationship. So we don't leave them, but we stay with them. Same with our family. We don't leave our family. We hope by God's grace, they are saved because of this. Now, Charles Spurgeon, I love this story. Has a little story here. Before he got married, he had picked up his fiancée to take her to a place where he was going to preach. And when they arrived, they were separated by the massive crowd of people. Spurgeon was a bit of a celebrity. He was already 20. He was only 20. And thousands of people were pushing in to hear him preach. And he sort of pushed his way up to the platform. And after the meeting was over, he couldn't find uh, his fiancée. So he just went over to her house. And he found her there, and she was sort of pouting and crying. And she said, Charles, you left me in that crowd all alone. You weren't even concerned where I was. And this is what he said, and I think there's a slide up there for this. I'm sorry, but perhaps what happened was providential. I didn't intend to be impolite, but whenever I see a crowd like that waiting for me to preach, I'm overwhelmed with a sense of responsibility. I forgot about you. Now let's get one thing straight. It will have to be the rule of our marriage that the command of my master comes first and you shall have second place. Are you willing as my wife to take second place while I give first place to Christ? Some of us husbands go, wow. Are you serious? He said that? And she married him? You know, all of us husbands should be able to say that to our wives. This should not be something that we laugh at or look at strangely. This should be what it looks like in your marriage. Your wife is not most important. Women, I'm sorry, you're not most important. Men, to your wives, I hope you're not most important because guess what? You're going to fail. It's not going to look good. Jesus Christ better be most important in these things. And this is true in all of our relationships. Christ needs to come first. Now, I always look at my relationship and and any relationship and I always say, well, how do I decide what's worth Christ and what's not? How do I get rid of the bad and start the right? How does this look in my life? And it's always been interesting to me that when I put Christ first, when I have my priorities straight, all of my relationships kind of come together automatically. I know who I should be hanging out with. I know who I shouldn't be with. I know what I should be doing. I know what I shouldn't be doing. It all comes very clear to me, but it's only when Christ is first in my life. When he's not, guess what I do? Well, I make decisions on my own. And when I make my own decisions, they're bad. All the time. And nothing good happens. So prioritize Christ in our relationships. Prioritize Christ in our lives. Verse 38 And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, when I was in high school, I went to the Grace Brethren National Youth Convention in Flagstaff, Arizona. This was in the 90s. And I I remember this conference. I don't remember all of it, but I remember a couple things. One, DeGarmo and Key was playing. And if you don't know who they are, look them up later. An older band. They're pretty good. Or at least I thought they were pretty good. The other one, we had this preacher talking about taking up your cross and following Christ. 
And he talked about all of these things you have to carry on your back as taking up your cross. Maybe you have some type of whatever in your life, something you need to hold on to that you have to carry, and that's what you give to Christ. And I remember listening to him going, huh, that's what that means? I didn't know that. I thought Christ was kind of like, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, where the weight falls off my back. I don't need to carry it the rest of my life. And I always scratched my head about that until a couple years later, I heard another sermon about this exact same verse. They said this verse means one thing very simply. You have to die to yourself. Now the disciples would have understood this. The disciples would have understood what taking up your cross means because they saw people doing this all the time. Romans, when you were bad, had you grabbed the nearest big beam, maybe two, throw it on your back, walk out of town, and they would nail you upon it. That's what they would do. They did this over and over and over again to anyone who would uprise against them, anyone who invaded against them, anyone who did anything that they wanted to set an example of, they would crucify. Now, right before Jesus' time, right before we go into AD, right in BC, there was 200 in Nazareth alone that were crucified around the roads. So when you would walk into Nazareth, you would see all these crosses and men hanging upon them. Now, Jesus at this point hasn't told his disciples that he is going to die in Jerusalem. He's not told them how he's going to die in Jerusalem. He will. But at this point, he hasn't said anything. So it doesn't point ahead to that either. This is simply a cultural reference that you need to die to yourself and put Christ first. Take up your cross. As soon as that cross is on your back, you're dead. Right? You may not have physically died yet, but you're dead. You're as good as dead. So when you take up that cross, you die to self, and you go to him. Now, here's what I love most about this. Who's the perfect example of this? Christ. Christ himself. He doesn't say, disciples, I did it. Come on. Can't you do it? Disciples, I did this perfectly. What's the matter with you? He understands our weakness. He understands who we are. But he also understands that we can do this. He understands that we can take up our cross and follow him. And then in the second verse, dying to self or living for yourself. Our society today has done a wonderful job of giving us an example of what it means to live to self. Ever since the sexual revolution, do you know what everything is about? My pleasure. Where do I get the most pleasure? Not only can you not fault me for getting pleasure wherever I want it, you have to support me in whatever depraved act I want to do because that's the way we think because whatever makes me happy is what it is. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. If you take up your cross and if you lose your life, you will gain everything. But if you look to yourself, you look only to yourself, you will have nothing. Now, what does this look like? What does this look like in our personal life? We need to die to self and live to Christ. What does that look like? Well, there's a couple real easy ones, but the biggest one is this, especially in our day and age. You make time for Christ. You put him first and you make time for him. Now, what does that look like? Go back real quick to that last slide. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
once spoke to a group of medical students who complained that in the midst of all their training and ferocious work hours, they really didn't have time to read the Bible and have their devotions and so on. He bristled and said to them, I am a doctor. I have been exactly where you are. You have time for what you want to do. And after a long pause, he said, I make only one exception. The mother of preschool-aged children does not have time or emotional resources. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones was a smart man, first off. He knew exactly what he was saying. But for most of us, we have zero excuse not to give time to the Lord in our lives and make him first. Every time you sit back at night and go, oh, I'm tired. I guess I'm going to watch the show I've really been wanting to watch instead. Oh, I just want to go hang out with some friends for a little bit. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, I want to do that. You make time for what is most important. Think about that. Now, I'll tell you one of the hard things in my life, football season, college football season. It's pretty important. Got to say, there's some teams I really enjoy to watch, and it's pretty important. And I'll be honest, it's a fight in my brain every time the Buckeyes are playing, but I need to study. It's the hardest thing in the world. But do you know what? It's for Christ, and it shouldn't be. It should be something very simple in my life. I can put that away because in the grand scheme of things, it means nothing. It's just a little bit of enjoyment. Why can't I put it away? It's hard. This is hard. This is not easy. But we need to make time for Christ, make time in our lives. We need to read our Bible. We need to pray. Have you guys heard that before? Many of us have heard this all the way from when we were two years old to now. Read your Bible and pray every day, right? And you will what? You'll grow, 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 right? How simple is that, but how hard is that? As we get older, we kind of dismiss some of these songs we hear as little kids as, that's a kid's song. Do you know the truth that are in those? If I read my Bible and pray every day, I will grow. It's that simple. Read your Bible, pray. And then we need to become more Christ-like in our lives. We need to become like our master in all things. It's funny, that bracelet, WWJD, been overplayed way too much. Way overplayed, but it's very true. In all situations, what would Jesus do? And what am I doing? Think about that. Then in our family life, in our family worship, we need to read our Bible together. We need to pray together as a family. Some families, if they're talented enough, not mine, We'll sing together. That's wonderful too, but we need to worship together and we need to encourage the things of the Lord in our families. And then lastly, we need to encourage the Lord in our church. We are not to neglect meeting together. We are supposed to be together as a family. Encourage those around you. Encourage the church body and make Christ number one in your lives. All right, let's go to verse 40. Whoever receives me, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive even a cup of cold water, uh, will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now, up until this point, this sermon has been pretty hard. A lot of gloom and doom, right? You're going to get persecuted. Nobody's going to love you. This world looks terrible. We're going to divide families. Nothing good is happening. Well, now we get to the good part. There is still a reward out there. Now let's talk about that reward for a second. The first one is this. When you go out and you preach the gospel, you could be used to save someone. Let me say that again. When you go out and preach the gospel, the Lord could use you to help save someone. Now remember, you're not saving them, but you could be used in that way. How exciting is that? Seriously. Someone's life could be altered And they could be going to heaven because you obeyed and told them the truth. Because they received the gift. I can't think of a better reward. So you could actually stop after that first verse and not go any farther. But he does go farther. He talks about three different classes of rewards. He talks about a prophet's reward, a righteous man's reward, and then we're going to call it the reward for the most insignificant. All right, right now, everyone he's talking to, all of the disciples, they're not special. They're nobodies. Nobody knows who these guys are. We just got their names for the first time at the beginning of this this section. They're nobodies. They're insignificant. But let's look at these rewards. First, prophets. Now, in the New Testament, there is a gift of prophecy, but there's no real cast of prophets like there was in the Old Testament, this cast where God would speak directly through them. So what Jesus is most likely saying is saying, hey, for those that go out and teach the word and people listen to them, they will get a prophet's reward. Now let's look twice we see in the Old Testament a special reward from prophets. The first one is Elijah. Elijah asks someone for a, a, an older woman for a uh, piece of food. And she says, Elijah, you know, I, I, I only have this little morsel of flour left. And I was going to go cook some bread and die. You really want to take my last morsel? And what does Elijah say? Hey, trust me. If you make me this bread, that flour will never run out. And you're going to be fine. And what happens? Sure enough, she does it. Um, and they're good to go. And then her son, later on, that same one, dies. And Elijah brings him back to life. So she receives the prophet's reward. Elisha does the same thing with the Shunammites, right? He comes and they can't have children. He says, you're going to have a child. They have a child. Ten years later, the child dies. And Elisha brings him back to life. These are prophet's rewards. Why? Because they believed what the prophet said without seeing anything. And the same thing goes here. If you believe in what someone says, you can have that reward. Again, the reward for a righteous person. If someone is upright living, so righteous person is probably something that's a cultural reference. It's probably something where you have people that look good in front of others, and they make others want to look like them. All right? They are righteous people. They're living rightly. Same thing there. If you see a righteous person and you want to follow him, then you'll get his reward. What is that reward? That's Jesus Christ. But here's the last one and the most important one. The insignificance, the little ones. Little one is kind of a bad translation here. It should literally mean the most insignificant, which is us. 
If you give just a cup of water to those that are in Christ, you will by no means lose that reward. Well, what does that mean for us? That means we need to have hospitality to everyone in Christ's name. We need to reach out and accept all of those around us. So there is a reward for those that listen because they will be saved. And there's a reward for the believer because we are supposed to be hospitable. One day Christ will be hospitable for us. Now let me bring this all back together and wrap it up. First and foremost, I confess to you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you cannot confess that back to me, examine yourself. Examine yourself today. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? Do you know that you have sin? Do you know that without him, you'll go to hell? Do you know that he loves you so much that he died on a cross in the most shameful way for us? He took an infinite punishment that I will never understand and paid the price for me. If you accept that, he's paid it for you as well. For those of us that know Christ, go therefore and teach the gospel. Confess Christ in front of others. Prioritize your life in a way that Christ is first and everything else is second. Look for him. Be prepared. Be prepared for suffering. Be prepared for persecution. Be prepared for people not to listen to you. But prepare your mind to have the gospel clearly stated to everyone around these. And remember this. In all these things, you are not alone. We have the backing, the support, and the love of the one true God. Now I'd like to end with a, with a song. Nate and group are going to come up here in a second. But let me read a little bit of the words for this song. You stood before creation, eternity in your hand, and you spoke the earth into motion, my soul now to stand. You stood before my failure and carried the cross for my shame. My sin weighed upon your shoulders, my soul now to stand. Now listen to this. So I'll walk upon salvation, your spirit alive in me, this life to declare your promise, my soul now to stand. So what do I say? Or what do I do? But offer this heart, O God, completely to you. So I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrendered. All I have is yours. Stand and pray with me, then we'll sing this song. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you understand the suffering and the trials and the persecution we may have, but Lord, you also understand that you are building a place for us in heaven and that we can get this through this with, with your help. We pray, Lord, right now that you would encourage each of us, encourage each of us in your son, encourage each of us in the gospel, that we would go out and boldly confess your name in front of others, that we would stand and offer ourselves up completely to you.